ask you a question. How does your favourite song make you feel? Music affects and changes people's lives. It invokes memories. The first gig you went to, the first record you bought, that song from your school days, or the song you danced to at your wedding, or even your first kiss. It gets you through the worst times and the best of times. Music has always played an important part in my life. First and foremost, I'm a music fan, but I've been lucky enough to have interviewed some of the biggest names in music, combining my career with my passion. Each week, I chat to some of my favourite artists to talk about the tracks of their lives and more. I'm Kylie Olsen, and this is Music and Me. He pretty much shot the 70s and 80s with his iconic pictures forever capturing some of music's most loved heroes, from John Lennon to the Sex Pistols and Debbie Harry, with his pictures becoming as iconic as the subjects that were in them. Now, the first time I met Bob Gruen was with the Stones in London, along with another great photographer, Gerard Mankovich. And when I saw these two in a corner chatting away, I could not believe my luck. Now, keeping in touch with them, I knew that when I was next in New York, which is where Bob was born and bred, I desperately needed to sit down and have a proper chat with him about some of his photos he's taken over the years and the stories behind them. Was I excited to pop along to his studio, which he's had since the 70s, and have a little rummage through some of his work? Hell yeah. So, Bob, thank you for inviting me along to your amazing New York <laughs> studio. It's very cool. You've been here for quite a while because you're a proper yeah. New Yorker. Yeah, uh, yeah, I live here all my life. That's quite rare, isn't it, to find New Yorkers in New York? Uh, well, there's, there are a lot around, but yes, it is rare. Most people come from somewhere else. Yeah. And you've actually been in this building for how many years now? I've been in the building since 1970, 48 years. So you've probably got a lot of stuff in here that, you know, that you maybe haven't found, that you forgot about, that's from some pretty interesting projects that you've worked on. Oh, well, we're in the midst of an archiving project now where we're collecting all my stuff, and uh, we do come across some things that I didn't quite remember, uh, but I do remember most of it. Um, so let's start at the very beginning. Um, when you think back to being a kid and being at home with your parents, mm. what was... Do you don't, do you? <laughs> no. Well, what, thinking about music and, um, you know, what, was, what is the one song that does remind you of being at home as a kid? The, the, actually, the first one I heard, the first rock and roll song I heard was a song called um, <clears throat> uh, Black Denim Trousers and Motorcycle Boots, uh, which was a hit here in America a couple of times. I think it came out in 1954. Mm. Uh, later, Edith Piaf covered it in the French version. Oh, really? Uh, and looking back, when I hear it, to me, it's the first kind of rock and roll song I ever heard because of the subject matter and the beat and so on. But listening to it, I don't even know if there are guitars on it. There's a lot of horns. It's kind of an orchestration song, but uh, Black Denim Trousers, Motorcycle Boots, that's the first uh, rock and roll song. He wore black denim trousers and motorcycle boots and a black leather jacket with an eagle on the back. He had a hopped up sickle that took off like a gun. That fool was the terror of Highway 101. I learned photography with my mother when I was four years old before there was rock and roll. Um, it was her hobby, and she liked to develop and print her own pictures. And when I was too little to go to sleep early and too big to, I mean, too big to go to sleep early, but too little to leave running around the house, uh, she took me in the dark room with her. And that's when I first learned uh, developing and printing. And I took to it, I liked it. 
So when I was eight years old, they gave me my first camera. Uh, rock and roll came along a couple of years after that. And, um, <clears throat> and I just started taking pictures, family pictures. Uh, I was a family photographer. I think that was good training for rock and roll because you have to get five or six uh, dysfunctional people to all look good at the same time. So <laughs> that's, like, uh, that's pretty much what I did for the rest of my life. Um, and after high school, uh, my idea of a career, you know, in the 60s was to turn on, tune in, and drop out. Uh, and so I dropped out and lived with a rock and roll band, uh, little knowing that I was actually falling into the rest of my life and an actual career. Uh, I didn't really want to work. Uh, I wanted to hang out with a rock and roll band. Uh, but then they got a contract, and the company, uh, the record company, used my pictures and started to hire me for more uh, you know, more bands and more pictures. And then a uh, big break actually is when I met Ike and Tina Turner. Uh, I went to a show of theirs and I took some good pictures. And then a couple of days later, I went back to another show and brought the pictures to show my friends. And as we were leaving, one of my friends saw Ike Turner walking from one dressing room to another and kind of pushed me in front of Ike and said, show Ike the pictures. And Ike stopped and said, what pictures? And I showed it to him and he liked the pictures very much. It was uh, that one oh, there, that one, yeah. uh, which is actually one picture of Tina. It's not a multiple exposure or Photoshop or anything. You just had uh, the shutter speed I quite had low. Shutter speed for one second, and she was dancing in a strobe light. So it's five different images in the one picture. Um, and I took about four or five shots like that. The other ones are useless because the images were all over the frame. Mm. But this one came out kind of perfect. And uh, when I showed it to Ike, he liked it a lot. And actually took a couple of other pictures that night that were good, so um, he liked those, and pretty soon uh, he, he met me in New York and uh, introduced me to the publicist, and just things started snowballing. I started working with them a lot. I started traveling with them, making videos for them. Uh, there's actually a DVD that's been released of my videos of Ike yeah. and Tina, um, called Ike and Tina Turner on the Road, 1971-72. Uh, and if the movie What's Love Got to Do With It shows why they broke up, uh, my film shows why they were together in the first place. Ah, okay. So, yeah, what were they like? They were the hardest working couple in show business. Uh, and uh, it wasn't a traditional marriage mm -hmm. in a sense. Like, you know, they're a loving couple that's always together. Uh, they were both kind of, I mean, I lived in the studio pretty much, and Tina was living at home with the kids. And there were other girls involved, too, uh, with Ike. And um, it, it was a different kind of lifestyle. Uh, not your typical so you mentioned obviously some of the people that you've worked with. Um, you worked with the uh, the Sex Pistols as well. What, how did that all come about? <coughs> it's actually an interesting. Uh, journey how I met them because uh, it was actually I, I met John and Yoko through an interview mm. and they liked the pictures that I did that night and uh, they asked me to come back more often and I started working with them and they were working with a band called The Elephant's Memory and they recorded an album uh, and the elephants were using my pictures in their album package and for their album cover uh, so I met their manager and mm. it turned out that their managers were also managing the New York Dolls okay. uh, so they suggested I come down and see them and I loved the dolls and got to meet them and we got along really well and like I say they became part of my family practically we spent a lot of time together uh, I traveled quite a bit with them I also made a video of uh, DVD of the New York Dolls uh, called um, All Dolled Up 
And yeah. uh, actually, we made two. One is called All Dolled Up, and the other one is uh, Looking Fine on Television. Um, and it's the only really record of the New York Dolls back then, walking and talking and playing live shows and backstage and traveling. The same kind of thing I did with Argentina, mm -hmm. backstage, traveling at home in the studio. Because uh, with the videotape, we used to just record and... and uh, and like I say, these kind of groups that I got to be comfortable with, I was there all the time. Yeah. So, um, so with the New York Dolls, I, got, I was working with them a lot for several years. And towards the end, as they were breaking up, actually, Malcolm McLaren got involved because he made some clothes for them. And, uh, you know, they say Malcolm was the manager of the Dolls. He was the manager for the last couple of weeks while he was trying to get them to advertise his clothes. And uh, I credit Malcolm with saving their life because at that point, Johnny and Jerry were really deep into a drug habit and Arthur was an alcoholic and Malcolm got them into hospitals and saved them and dried them out and got them healthy enough to play a couple of shows wearing his red outfits, uh, the red patent leather series that the dolls did. But then uh, they broke up. Eventually, Malcolm went back to England and... About a year later, I went to England for the first time, and the only people I knew in England was the editor of the enemy of the Melody Maker, Roy Coleman, and uh, Ray Coleman, and uh, Malcolm McLaren. So I called Malcolm up, and he found me a place to stay, and he took me to a place called Club Louise in London. Uh, it was kind of an underground club, and at the time when I went there, it seemed like the whole uh, beginnings of the English punk scene was in that one room in the Club Louise. Uh, I met the Sex Pistols, The Clash, Susie and the Banshees, Marco Peroni, and Billy Idol, and um, uh, Caroline Kuhn and John Savage. It was just the basic kernel of what became the punk scene yeah. in England. And they were all right there in that one place. And Malcolm introduced me to them all, and I was taking pictures of them, and I came back about six months later and got more involved. Uh, because that first time I was there... <clears throat> Uh, the Sex Pistols had just come back from Sweden or something. Johnny Rotten had something on his throat that he didn't really want to sing. But I went to a rehearsal, and I took some pictures of them rehearsing. And I was actually there the day they signed to EMI, so I have some pictures of that. Uh, when I came back, uh, but I, I, they also, Caroline Kuhn took me to see The Clash. And I was totally blown away. I saw them at the ICA in London. And, uh, and they were just phenomenal, the power and the strength of it. And... Uh, and I knew I wanted to see him again. <clears throat> and so when I came back a year later, uh, the record company said they couldn't really help me, but because uh, the clash didn't really work with the record company. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but I asked them, just tell me where they are, and I'll go find them. Uh, and they were in Edinburgh, and I said, I'll buy a ticket on the sidewalk if I have to. I want to see the band, you know, because uh, I've been in photography as a career, but also because I'm a fan. Mm -hmm. And uh, with a band, after I'd seen the clash, I wanted to see them again. So I really was willing to just buy a ticket on the sidewalk and go into the show. I've, done that for other bands uh, as luck would have it my life tends to work in mysterious ways um, as I when I went to um, Edinburgh and I was checking into the hotel Mick Jones and Paul Simonon happened to be at the desk asking the clerk about something and Mick recognized me from Club Louise he said you're that guy from New York right and I was like yeah and he said what are you doing here I said well I'm coming to see your show and so he brought me to meet the road manager who got me passes and I actually spent the next three days uh, with the clash and um, getting to know them. And then when they came to New York, uh, shortly after that, or about a year later maybe, um, I was the only person they knew in New York. And I had a nice car, so we drove around a lot and got to know each other even more. And, uh, and eventually when they came to tour, I went on two bus trips across America with the crash. 
Boots, don't you? Was it who gave you the boots from the Sex Pistols? Was it Johnny Rotten uh, or Sid? Sid. Um, well, because I had a pair of boots, uh, they were engineer boots, American engineer boots, and actually Johnny. Uh, uh, one time when I went to England, Johnny Thunders had lost his boots or someone stole them or something. He asked me to bring him a pair of boots, so we had the same kind of boots. And Sid had seen the boots on Johnny, and then when he saw me with the boots, he wanted the same kind of boots. They're serious, heavy-duty engineer boots with a metal toe. Um, and so I was wearing them when I went on uh, Sex Pistols tour bus. And at one point I fell asleep in the front of the bus on the couch there. When I, the boots were on the floor. And um, when I woke up, Sid was wearing my boots. And uh, what I heard later, Johnny told me he and another guy was sitting there. And Sid took my boots and tried them on while I was sleeping. And he liked them. And then he took his knife out and actually held it to my throat and said to them, like, if I kill him, I can keep the boots. And uh, I didn't know about it because I was sleeping. What I don't like about the story is that Johnny and the other guy didn't do anything about it. They just watched to see what would happen. <laughs> yeah. uh, anyway, he didn't kill me, obviously. <clears throat> and when I woke up, he was wearing my boots, and uh, he had a pair of paratrooper boots that he said, you can wear my boots if you want. You know. Uh, now, the thing about it was that um, I had stood on the front of one of my boots one time. I was at a club, and I was trying to get a little bit higher to get a, over somebody's head to get a picture. Mm -hmm. So since there were these steel toes, I kind of stepped on one to get an extra two inches higher. Uh, but that bent the toe down. And because it was steel and it was inside the boot, I brought it to a couple of bootmakers, but they couldn't really get an angle to bang it back out. It was very, very heavy steel. Uh, so it was always a little off. And if I took a step the wrong direction, it would kind of cut into my foot a little. So I didn't really like those boots. Uh, but Sid said he wanted to wear them. He was wearing them. Uh, the nice part of the story is that in the next day, uh, both uh, Johnny Rotten, uh, Steve uh, Jones, and Paul Cook, all three of them, came up to me separately and said, "Listen, you know, Sid doesn't run this band. If you want your boots back, don't think, you know, don't be afraid to ask for them. It's not no. like if you want your boots back that you're going to get thrown off the bus or anything like that. If you want them, just ask for them. They're yours, That's you know." And I said, well, actually, I'm kind of enjoying Sid's very, very comfortable paratrooper boots. <laughs> Let him wear mine as long as he wants. I don't really mind because, um, like I say, they hurt my feet. <laughs> you yeah. know? I'd rather have his boots. Um, and then actually what happened was on the last day of the, the tour, we were in San Francisco, and they brought them to a store where they could buy leather jackets. And the store had the exact same kind of engineer boots. So I showed Sid, I said, look, Sid, here's a brand new pair. We'll get your size, mm -hmm. and you can break them into your foot. They'll be yours. And he goes, no, no, I like the way yours are broken. I'm going to keep yours, but I'll buy you a new pair. So I came home from the tour with a brand new pair of boots that were working. They weren't yeah. bent <laughs> for my feet. And I also have Sid's boots. So um, someday if you see Sid's boots on eBay, you'll know I'm running yeah, out of money. <laughs> <laughs> so you still have them? I still have them. Where, where do you keep them? Are they? Uh, are they in this? The they're <laughs> hidden. <laughs> they're not. They're not. They're not on display. They're not on display. No, I have them stashed away. Um, but with uh, a picture of Sid wearing them. <laughs> oh, brilliant! That you took, so of course. Kind of. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Were you so a fan? You know. Were you a fan of their music? Uh, of the Sex Pistols? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, yes and no. Um, I mean, I became a fan, and certainly now when you hear their songs, they sound like anthems. 
Uh, back then, their shows were more like chaos. It yeah. wasn't about liking the music or not. The whole show was just chaotic uh, and fun for me. I mean, I enjoyed it. Some people don't like chaos. Mm. I do. I thrive in chaos. I mean, I actually enjoy peace and quiet, but I thrive in chaos. Um, <clears throat> but I do remember the first time uh, Malcolm, I came back to England, I guess, 77, and Malcolm, I stopped by the office, and Malcolm gave me a copy of the record. And I went to a friend of mine's house who had a good stereo. We put the record on. We started listening to it. And I called Malcolm back. And I said, Malcolm, is this a test pressing? You're going to mix this album before you release it, aren't you? And he goes, no, mate, that's the record. And I was like, really? <laughs> it's going to sound like this? you know? Because it sounded so raw and so noisy. Hmm. Um, now it sounds like anthems. It's perfectly clear. But yeah. back then, the first time I listened to it, I was like, you got to be kidding. <laughs> Yeah, well, it was, I suppose, the and start of that whole movement. To, I was listening to things like New York Dolls and Alice Cooper and Kiss, Susie Quattro, uh, but that record just sounded like noise. Uh, but like I say, now I hear it places, and I, you know every single word, and it does sound mm. like anthems. They had great songs. I suppose for you as a photographer, they're kind of a dream to shoot as well, aren't they? Because visually, how they look, and, well, and like you say, uh, the chaos that goes with it, you know you're going to get some good shots. Well, well, yes and no. I mean, they're very visual. Mm. Uh, they knew what they were doing. They were putting on a show, uh, but it was a little difficult because the audience was such chaos, and there were things flying through the air, big things, people flying through the air, uh, boots and things, and uh, bottles, and uh, you know, it was dangerous yeah. <laughs> to, to photograph them. So it wasn't exactly a dream. Uh, <laughs> some of those bands back then, especially when the drugs and the alcohol kick in, the audience got pretty crazy. Did you ever? Did you ever get hit by anything then? Uh, not with them. Eventually, I did one time at a Ramones show that I didn't re even really realize it. Um, what happened? I mean, I was down in front of the show, and by then, mosh pit was it was kind of an established thing. Mm. Uh, I mean, when I started, even with the Sex Pistols, they didn't really have a mosh pit as such. It was just chaos. But eventually. Um, by the 80s, the, the mosh pit idea uh, had taken, a, you know, become a thing. Yeah. Uh, and I was at a Ramones show one time, and I, I remember photographing and looking at the band, and all of a sudden something banged the front of my forehead. And I, I didn't see, you know, there was nothing around me. I didn't know what had hit me. And I thought somebody had banged into me and bounced off, and I just didn't see it. And after the show, somebody said to me, like, well, man, that was pretty heavy. Somebody kicked you in the back of the head. And I was like, really? <laughs> I didn't even know it, but somebody apparently kicked me in the back of the head, and my head hit the stage. And uh, I didn't even really realize it. You know, Luckily, it wasn't hard enough to... Luckily, know, they didn't have your boots on. Me out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he wasn't wearing my boots. Yeah, you know? exactly. And do you still enjoy taking... I mean, do you still go to a gig and get in the front and, and no. enjoy that moment? No. Hardly, hardly ever. I mean, I do with some bands that give me access that I'm friends with, mm -hmm. like Green Day. Uh, gives me complete access. Uh, there's a band called The Stripes, a new yeah. young band uh, that I work with. Because uh, I found it more, more and more frustrating when bands started restricting access and you can only shoot one song or three songs and then you have to actually leave the venue. Yeah. And I didn't always go just to take pictures. I often went because I wanted to see a show. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of taking pictures for you know five minutes and leaving wasn't what I was about, so I don't really do that. I'd rather go to a show and watch it and not take pictures. Mm -hmm. Uh, but that said, I always have a camera in my pocket. I have a pocket camera that have, and the pocket cameras have gotten very, very sophisticated nowadays. Uh, the one I use has a long 10x zoom, and a, a, it does a raw file, which is a very large professional file. Uh, so you can make really big, good quality prints out of it. It's got a glass lens. It's very sharp and clear. What one do you uh, use? Uh, I'm using the Lumex camera now. Yeah. Uh, 
and it's just a really great little pocket camera. I, I use Canon camera mostly, mm -hmm. but for the pocket camera nowadays, I've been using that one. Okay, interesting. So I'm always taking pictures, and whenever I go to a show, I do take some pictures with the pocket camera. I only take the big camera out when I'm working, when I'm being paid, hmm. you know, uh, or with Green Day or something. Oh, I remember we were when we first met. I think it was the first time we met was at the Rolling Stones exhibitionism, and I was chatting to you and Gerard Mankovic. Oh, uh -huh. And I think I said to you both about you know um, why is it? Do you think you know your like how it kind of differs now to back when you first started? And you both said access. Mm. And that's the thing, and I think that's kind of what you're alluding to now, that yeah. you don't in get as much uh, access. In the 80s, when uh, rock and roll became very corporate, yeah. with MTV and corporations realizing there was a lot of money in rock and roll and started trying to take it over and control it, it really started changing. And they, uh, <clears throat> in, a, in a misguided reaction to merchandising, mm. uh, they started restricting photography, uh, thinking that if they restricted available photographs they could restrict available bootleg merchandise it, it doesn't really work that way yeah. uh, no bootlegger has ever bought a picture from me or anybody yeah. um, they usually get a free one from the record company <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it just made taking pictures uh, much more difficult and not nearly as much fun and uh, and nowadays I mean more and more actually after 2000 as the digital world started growing and becoming such much better quality and so much more available uh, you know that your phone now takes really excellent pictures so you go to a concert and the first song half the people in the concert are taking their own pictures yeah. and with two or three touches on the screen they post them instantly around the world so before the first song is over those pictures are all over the world so that kind of access and news cycle is very hard to compete with. Mm -hmm. You know, I used to take pictures and go home and develop the pictures and make prints the next day and send them to a magazine. And within two or three or four weeks, they get published. Yeah. Nowadays, it's literally one or two minutes and they're published around the world. I, I've, I've started taking pictures at gigs mm -hmm. sometimes as well now. And I'm in the pit for like the, the, the first three songs. Mm -hmm. And I never realized how stressful it is. Mm -hmm. And then that got me thinking about you guys when you all first started. You didn't have digital cameras, so no. you couldn't just shoot a million pictures. No. You had to you really had to think. Exactly. It was expensive. And, uh, pay for every frame and in money and in time because uh, if every 30 pictures, you to, every 35 pictures, you'd have to change the role. Yeah. And each role costs money and the developing of each role costs money. Um, so you really didn't just shoot wildly. Mm. You, you had to make every picture count. And you had to focus it, and you had to figure out what the setting was, you know, with the f-stops and the speed, which are combined to yeah. uh, let a certain amount of light in. All of that is totally computerized mm. now. <clears throat> and the number of pictures you can take is practically unlimited, uh, since you can take, you know, a thousand pictures, go home and download them and use that same card over again and take another thousand the next day uh, without paying anything, you know. So um, it's changed quite a bit. You know, the idea of just snapping away. Like, you did have to think of what you were doing and not waste film. Um, and you couldn't shoot as fast. You really had to focus it. You had to think about how much light there was, change the lighting settings. 
things like that. Well, do you think most people shoot autom automatic now then? Oh, yeah. Oh, see, I wasn't shooting automatic. That's why mm. I was finding it stressful because I was like, oh, mm. God, I've got to quick, 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 and then you've missed your shot. Well, uh, <laughs> yeah, well, yes and no. I mean, uh, with a show, the lighting is changing so fast. Yeah. And often, if somebody is lit with a spotlight and it's dark behind them, if you shoot automatically, it won't adjust for how bright the person is. Right, okay, yeah. And so the person will be completely washed out because it'll be exposing for the majority of the frame, which is all black, and a bright person in the spotlight hmm. gets too bright. Yeah, and then they get bleached <laughs> so, out. Um, I mean, I tend to shoot with a, a semi-automatic setting. Okay. Um, it, it's what they, it's called program setting, where it's pretty automatic, but you can make it a little lighter and darker. You can adjust things within that automatic setting, oh. so it automatically does things a little differently. <laughs> Tricks of the trade. Okay, yes. I'm learning. <laughs> yes, yeah. You put it on the P setting, uh, and then you can turn uh, the brightness up and down. Okay, cool. Thank you. Thanks for that. And a big help nowadays is that as soon as you take the picture, you can see it yeah, in the screen on the back of the camera. You mm. know whether or not it came out. Yeah. You can blow it up and see whether or not somebody's eyes are closed. Yeah. Back in the old days, um, you didn't know if you even got a picture until you went home and developed it. You might have had everything set wrong. Or, I mean, just one button set wrong would be everything. Uh, and you come home with a blank roll of film, or uh, sometimes with the flash setting, the flash wouldn't synchronize on every speed, so if you had the speed one or two clicks off, uh, you'd only get a half a frame or a third of a frame. That could be very frustrating. Okay, so... you're being paid for the job. Yeah, that's <laughs> stressful, isn't it? Yes, so, it that, is. so that, I suppose we've seen all it's, your amazing it's so pictures. It's stressful that, f for instance, something really important like the Rolling Stones, where you only mm. get two or three songs, and you have to get a lot of pictures because there's a lot of outlets and there's a lot going on and you want pictures of each guy separately and together and mm. they're running all over the place and you're trying your best to focus it and shoot it and get the exposure right and you know, do all of that and you only have about six or seven minutes so that when I would come off and people say, what songs were they playing? Oh, you have no and idea. And I had no idea <laughs> and I would say, you know, I was singing along and I have no idea what songs they were. Because you're just not thinking of that. You're thinking numbers, you're thinking focus. Yeah. Um, and literally, I could be singing along and not have any memory of five minutes later what song they were playing. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. 
Find out how much at airbnb.com slash post. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So we've seen all your amazing pictures and you mentioned the ones that, you know, that stressful thing when you've come home and you're like, oh my God, there's mm. nothing here. Mm. When's that happened to you? And who with? Oh, well, the most memorable was uh, when Bob Dylan was doing the Rolling Thunder tours and they weren't allowing any photography. And uh, I actually got into several shows. I would hide my camera in my boots and put the film in the hood of my jacket. And actually, I put the film on my arm and the lens in the hood of my jacket. I snuck my cameras in and waited till near the end. And then I would pop up and start shooting some pictures. And there was one time I was in Atlanta. And um, I was actually right near where uh, Jimmy Carter, who became president, he was the governor back then. Mm -hmm. And he was sitting there with a couple of people. So Dylan was kind of looking towards that direction and he was looking right towards me i was right behind the governor in that line and i was shooting away and shooting away and um kept shooting and after a while you kind of realized like you should have run out of film like it seems like more than 35 pictures and and i'm still shooting and and it's still going and you realize that you forgot to change the film and then i had all of these perfect pictures of bob dylan head to waist looking right in my direction like cover, poster, beautiful pictures, and there was no film in the camera. That was frustrating. <laughs> that's kind of karma, though, so if it's sneaking forget. in. <laughs> that, that's the one I remember, you know? <laughs> well, yeah, because I was sneaking in, maybe that came back. But Although I did end up, after seven shows, I did a lot of covers and posters from that tour. Did you? Yeah. Oh, okay. So he let you into the gigs and... and no, no, he didn't let me in. In fact, I met him a couple of months later on the sidewalk and he was furious. He wanted to beat me up. It was the only time I've actually spoken about Dylan. He told me he wanted to beat me up. You're joking. How Which did, how did like he know? God and finding out he wanted to kill you, you know, it was kind of weird. <laughs> how did he know that you'd snuck in then? He saw my name, the photo credit. Oh, and, uh, God. Yeah, of course. Yeah, it was kind of a weird thing because I'm a big, big fan. I mean, that's why I snuck in because I felt it was a news story. I felt it was important. And I, I didn't think it was right that he could completely ban photography. Mm. And uh, I mean, in years later, seeing it from his point of view, I, I always felt kind of bad that I, you know, um, that I snuck in. That I, because uh, it's the only time I've ever done that. I've always respected people's privacy, mm. but I didn't feel it was private. I felt it was very public since there was you know twenty thousand people in the arena, <laughs> um, and I just felt. Uh, and I wasn't out to expose him or embarrass him. I was out to record the event. And yeah. I tried my best to get good pictures, which is why I, they were on the cover of magazines, because they were mm -hmm. good pictures. Um, <clears throat> but he had been trying to control it. He was very angry that uh, I, I was the only one who managed to sneak in and publish so many pictures. So he saw my name in the magazines. And then I happened to be in Berlin uh, because he was playing there, actually. I was at a Rolling Stones concert, and I ran into the publicist, and I said I was going to Europe. And he said, oh, I'm going with Bob. He's playing in Berlin next week. And I said, really? If I come to Berlin, can I get a pass? And he said, oh, okay, I'll hook you up. So I get to Berlin, and I got in a cab to go to the venue to meet the publicist. Mm -hmm. And as I was driving, I saw a bodyguard. The first thing I recognized was the bodyguard that I had just been 
with a month earlier. He was working for Bay City Rollers at that point, and we had spent a lot of nights yeah. hanging out together. And I saw him walking across the street, and then I realized that this scruffy little guy next to him was Bob Dylan. And there was another guy with him, too, and I was like, oh, my God, this is Bob Dylan. And I, I just, as I say, I'm a fan. I just stopped the cab and jumped out of the cab and came down the block after him. I had no idea what I was going to say to Bob Dylan. I, I was just excited, you know, mm -hmm. like, there's Bob Dylan, wow. And <laughs> I came down the block, and my friend Patty Callahan turned around, and uh, he saw me. He said, oh, Bob, how are you doing? I said, I'm fine. And I looked at Bob Dylan, and I didn't know what to say. And he was looking at me like, who the hell are you? You know, And, and I wasn't, it was, like I say, it was in Berlin, but I was speaking English to Patty, so obviously I wasn't some German fan. So Dylan started walking away, and Patty said, oh, i, I got to go. I'm working. Are you coming to the show? I said, yeah, I'll see you tonight. So then they took about a few steps, and he must have either said to Bob Dylan, you know, do you know you know, Bob, or, or Dylan asked who was that. And when he heard my name, he swung around. He says, I know you. I've seen your name next to the pictures. And he had a cane in his hand, a silver top cane. And he started waving it at me. He says, I always said when I met you, I was going to beat you up. And I'm like, looking at Patty, like, I'm looking at Dylan's bodyguard saying, hey, Patty, you're my friend, right? You're going to protect me. me. I know. <laughs> you don't have to protect, you know, help. You know? <laughs> and, uh, and I kind of talked him down, and it was kind of funny. Like I said, I've always tried to take good pictures of you, you know. And he said, what about that picture with Patty Smith? And I didn't take that one. Oh, <laughs> um, <laughs> I knew which picture he was referring to, and a friend of mine had taken it. I said, I didn't do that one, you know. And he just kind of mumbled a bit and, you know, growled and left. And uh, I was kind of shaken because, like I say, it was like meeting God and finding out that he wanted to kill you. <laughs> you know? Was that the last time you spoke so, to him? Uh, I, uh, it's the only time I ever spoke to him. Um, <laughs> I, uh, he's not a very friendly guy from what I understand so what, what, what was the, the Dylan song that got you into Dylan oh uh, all of them uh, I remember a friend of mine brought the album the first album uh, and uh, I remember where I was in my living room when my friend said you gotta hear this guy he's really amazing and he put the record on and <laughs> it started playing and I started laughing I literally fell on the floor laughing and I said, this guy's not a singer. What is this? You know? And he goes, oh, it's Bob Dylan. He's really good. Listen to the words. And I started listening to the words and, uh, and started listening to how he was saying the words. And it wasn't your traditional kind of you know, Elvis Presley singing, but it was very meaningful uh, to the point that when he made the song, It's All Right, Mom, Only Bleeding, mm -hmm. I played that for my mother to explain to her how I felt. And I don't think she got it, but I knew that that's how I felt. And there's many Bob Dylan songs that uh, are kind of like, a, almost like a Bible to me. I learned a lot of spirituality from Bob Dylan songs. Pointed threats, they bluff with scorn. Suicide remarks are torn from the fool's gold mouthpiece, the hollow horn. Plays wasted words, proves to warn that he not busy being born, is busy dying. as well John Lennon of course um, I mean when did you first start working with him what year was that uh, well they came to New York in 1971 and I first met them I think they came to the end of the summer and everybody heard they were in town and they, yeah. <clears throat> there was John and Yoko sightings all over and, and it turned out they actually got an apartment right around the corner here uh, half a block away on Bank Street and uh, people in the neighborhood knew it but you didn't go and ring his bell and try mm, to meet him yeah. or something you know um, but then I went to the Apollo Theater. There was a benefit for the families of the prisoners injured in the Attica prison riot. And um, 
and John and I was expecting to see Aretha Franklin there. And as I walked in, I heard the announcer say John John Lennon Yoko Ono, and I felt like I was hit by lightning. Like oh my God, I'm in the same room as John and Yoko, uh, because like everybody, I'd been a Beatles fan. Uh, like many people, I was more of a Stones fan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, they say silver, gold, Stones, yeah. or Beatles. Um, I'm more of a Stones fan. Me too. Um, they would just had more of an edge to yeah. them. You know, uh, all the girls like the Beatles, so we like the Stones, yeah. you know. <laughs> and, uh, you know, when I was in college, when the Beatles first came out, it was all John, Paul, George, and Ringo, and all the guys, and how about me, you know? Mm. <laughs> like, um, but I was, but after the Beatles, when John and Yoko started doing things, and they were doing things for peace, and they were doing outrageous things for peace, sending acorns to everybody in the world, uh, instead of hiding on their honeymoon or trying to hide, when they realized that there was nowhere they could hide, they made their honeymoon public mm-hmm. and invited everybody in to take a picture of them in bed, in mm-hmm. their honeymoon bed, so long as the word peace was in the background, yeah. so that every newspaper in the world carried the word peace. Uh, those kind of things really impressed me. Um, and I, I was a big fan of John and Yoko, much more than I would have been of the Beatles or anybody, actually. Uh, so when I first saw John and Yoko, I was like, oh my God, I'm in the same room with these you know, fantastic people. Um, and then backstage was the first time I spoke to him. Um, in just a very brief way, he was, they were waiting for their car, and a number of people, were, they, in those days, they had a little instamatic, a little square camera with a cartridge, mm-hmm. and you put a little flash cube in it. And people were taking the same kind of things we would call selfies nowadays, people, you know, with pictures of each other with John and Yoko. And um, and I took a couple of pictures. And at one point, John sort of said to everybody standing around, like, people are always taking pictures of us like this, and we never get to see them. What happens to these pictures? And I said, well, I live around the corner from you. I'll show you my pictures. And he said, oh, you live around the corner? Well, slip them under the door. And I didn't quite slip them under the door. I went by a couple of days later, and I rang the bell. And Jerry Rubin answered the door, which surprised the hell out of me. You know? okay. I didn't know he was hanging out with them. And... Uh, he said, are they expecting you? I said, no, I'm just here to give this to them, and I left it for them. And later, after we became friends, Yoko said to me that that kind of impressed them because I was the only person who came by who didn't ask for something. That I was the only person who just gave something mm-hmm. and left. Uh, and because also they liked my pictures, yeah. you know, that I left. And they were like, who was that guy? <laughs> you know, yeah. and, uh, and then uh, about four months later, uh, I was involved, uh, I was included in the first book of rock and roll photography. And the editor of the book liked me and said he was doing an interview with John and Yoko the following week, and would I come with him to take some pictures? And so I did. And um, and I took some pictures that night. They were working with the Elephant's Memory Band. And I went to the studio with them, because the story we were working on was actually not about John and Yoko. It was about the Elephant's Memory. So I asked them if I could come with them to the studio to take pictures of them with the band, and they said yes if I waited around the end of the night. And I did, and uh, I took some pictures, and then... Um, it was actually a couple of weeks later they got in touch with me to see the pictures and they liked them a lot. Mm-hmm. And because uh, I ran into the drummer, he said they wanted to see my pictures, and uh, that was the first time he brought me to their house, and that was the first time we really just sat around an afternoon and talked. And they liked those pictures, and they liked that my I saw show them other pictures that I'd taken, and they liked that. And at the end of the day, um, Yoko asked me to come to the studio more often and said that they wanted to work with me and they wanted to know me. So what, what was he like to shoot? I mean, was he quite involved on, on how he wanted it to look, or did he just leave you to uh, it? And well, he was very comfortable. By the time I met him, he'd already been a Beatle and mm-hmm. you know was the most famous person in the world for a while. Yeah. So he was very comfortable having his picture taken. Uh, they liked to have their life documented. Um, it was you know, kind of normal for them. 
So they weren't self-conscious at all uh, because the deal we made that very first day when Yoko invited me to come more often was that they weren't going to actually pay me themselves. I wasn't being hired on a daily basis. But if I would come, you know, when I had time uh, and if, and take pictures and then show them the pictures and only use the pictures they liked, then uh, I would be able to sell them and I would have pictures that no one else had. And I would have access to them to be able to sell these pictures and I could make money that way. Mm -hmm. And that's always the basis that I've worked with them on. I mean, over the years, occasionally they pay for an album cover picture or you know, some publicity or something they use. But mostly, um, I, I've worked selling you know, pictures, uh, okay. you know, not charging them. Uh, some photographers don't want to you know, have to show their pictures to the artist and have to discuss it. Uh, I prefer to show my pictures to the artist because mm. I, w I would like to, to use... Happy, I want them to be happy. I want them to hire me again. Yeah. Uh, rock and roll photography is a very low-budget occupation, mm. and uh, you can't take pictures just once and expect to you know, pay your rent. And so with people like that, I would want to establish a relationship where they would trust me and call me more often, and I could uh, you know, take pictures more often and have more pictures to sell to mm. pay my rent. Yeah. So... Um, so I prefer to not embarrass people. I, I, I would feel, t I, you know, I have empathy for people. So I wouldn't want somebody putting out a picture where I look bad. Yeah. And I understand that other people wouldn't like that either. So whenever I can, I prefer to show the picture to somebody and say, is, is this the picture you want me to use? Mm -hmm. um, because if it's not, I won't use it. Yeah. Um, you know, I'd rather find one they like and then they'll hire me again yeah, and they'll let exactly. me in. So at that time, um, that was when, am I right in saying that was when um, John was fighting the U.S. government, yeah. wasn't it? So did he talk much <laughs> about that? Um, well, it was a constant, uh, we didn't talk about it in that sense. Um, you know, when you're friends with somebody, you don't do interviews, you know. Yeah. Like people ever ask me sometimes, did he talk about the Beatles a lot? And he didn't talk about it a lot, except uh, on occasion, uh, I mean, I remember one time, Saying, I mean, often he was very proud of being part of the Beatles, yeah. and uh, very proud. Um, but no, we didn't really talk about the deportation case a lot, but we did know it was always hanging over him. Mm -hmm. And we would hear clicks on the phone, and sometimes they, they, were, they were thinking that their phone was tapped. And, you know, uh, people would say, oh, you're just being paranoid. But, you know, there was an expression back then that just because you're paranoid doesn't mean you're not being followed. Mm -hmm. And there was a couple of nights when I was followed. Uh, which I didn't really connect at the time because who would follow me? Like, why would somebody follow me? Like, I left the studio with John and Yoko at 3 o'clock in the morning one night, and to come to this neighborhood from there, you have to go down 44th Street, turn left up 8th Avenue, left again over to 9th Avenue, left again down to 14th Street, turn right, turn left all the way down to this block, and turn right. And there was a car that I, I just I noticed them. I mean, there's a car following me when I left. It wasn't a big deal. But when they made the third turn onto Ninth Avenue, I noticed that this car is, like, right behind me. And I was expecting they would turn somewhere else, but mm. all the way down to 14th Street. So when we turned on 14th Street, I noticed the guy is still there. And when we turned down Washington, he's still there. And, like, now in this neighborhood, it's not really normal for the, somebody at 4 in the morning to be going to the exact same place, yeah. making all the same turns. So when we got to Bethune Street, I jumped out of the, I, I pulled around the corner kind of quickly and parked the car and jumped out of the car. And the other car came around the corner and there was two guys and I swear they looked like G-men, like, you know, with an overcoat and a fedora <laughs> pulled down, kind of glancing up. And they looked at me and I looked at them and they sped away. 
Several years later, we learned that the FBI was following John and Yoko and people around them, and uh, very likely I was followed. Did you tell John and Yoko that you thought someone was following you? No, I didn't think somebody was following me. I thought it was just mysterious, odd occurrence. I I didn't think somebody would. Why would somebody follow me? You know, I mean, I just thought it was just really, it was just kind of a weird thing that happened one night, you know, and we didn't connect it until later when his lawyers found out that the FBI actually had been following him. So is there anyone left that you'd like to shoot that you haven't? Um, not really. Um, I've covered most of my heroes. I mean, I wish I had met Otis Redding, mm. uh, but I started too late for that. Yeah. Uh, I met Jimi Hendrix once, and he said, I, I showed him my Tina, this Tina Turner picture. Yeah. But the first day, I made a big print of that. I came out of the subway in Sheridan Square, and I saw Jimi Hendrix walking across the street. And I kind of followed down the block, because uh, it was in my direction. And he went into the Pink Teacup, as a soul food restaurant used to be on Bleecker Street. And I hemmed and hawed on the sidewalk whether or not I should go in. And you don't want to bother somebody, but it was Jimmy. Hen- I mean, Jimmy Hendrix. You know, and I just wanted to show him my picture. <laughs> so after a couple of minutes, I said, "What the hell?" And I took it out of the envelope and I went in. And I said, "I just wanted to show you this picture I took." And he looked at it and he said, "That's a really good picture." And I said, "Well, I could take pictures of you." And he said, "Okay, we'll meet again." So, uh, are you experienced? <laughs> Have you ever been experienced? Well, I have. So, if someone's starting out as a photographer today, do you think there's actually a career there for them? I don't know what kind of advice I'd give people uh, because I kind of fell into it. It wasn't a career when I did it. Uh, I never really looked at it as a career goal. I looked at it kind of the other way around as something to do instead of working. <laughs> uh, but it turned out to be very hard work. Yeah. Um, you know, I always enjoy taking pictures, but when you're on deadline and when you have to... Because uh, I, I took one course in photography, but I learned something very important there at the FIT uh, Fashion Institute here. I took a night course once because... Uh, as I started getting more and more involved in photography, I never had any formal lesson. And I thought, well, maybe there's something I don't know, you know, besides mm-hmm. how to develop and print. So I took a class just to learn some facts. Yeah. And uh, what I learned, one of the most important things I learned was the difference between being uh, an amateur and, and taking pictures that you like, uh, you know, taking pictures of things you want to see and, and, you know, when you want to see them, to being professional, which is taking pictures that somebody else wants to see when they want you to do it. Mm. And that's a big difference, yeah. is to show up and you know fulfill someone else's vision on a deadline. That's a big difference. That's yeah. the difference between amateur and professional. Okay. Amateurs do what they want. Professionals do what the client wants. Yeah. And that's a big, big difference. Yeah. To try to figure out what they want mm. when a lot of people, it's hard to describe a visual that you haven't made yet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Now, even people who can make a sketch, it's still not the actual thing with the feeling with the people. So uh, it gets much more difficult when it's professional. And I think as well, like for the the rock photography uh, or music photography in general, is like looking at that Tina Turner. I mean, that's not a conventional picture that was Mm. taken Mm. in those days. Mm. And so I suppose you had this whole... it's this empty canvas in a sense that you could yeah. go out and just kind of reinvent the whole photography that was happening because it was just a standard well, yeah, boring headshot. There's so much that people see and mm-hmm. there's so much history that they know the entire history of photography. Yeah. You know, it's all online, everything you've ever heard or seen. Um, so it's all derivative mm-hmm. nowadays. Uh, there's almost nothing that hasn't been done. It's very yeah. hard to find something new, yeah. you know. Uh, but 
back in the early you know in the 60s and 70s when it was being invented everything was new uh, so I worked with people like Tina Turner or Alice Cooper or uh, you know all the people that back then uh, it was a new thing so it wasn't until in the 80s when you heard a band you said well this band is kind of like ACDC if Alice Cooper was the singer uh, well that band might be like that but Alice Cooper wasn't like anybody mm. You couldn't compare him to anybody. Yeah. You couldn't compare Tina Turner to anybody previous. Because there wasn't anybody. Because there wasn't anybody. Yeah. You know? So I was lucky enough to come up with the originals. And now, for me, it's really derivative. It is like this mm -hmm. band is like ACDC with Alice, and I've seen both of them originally. So I don't really need to see somebody who's like them. You know? You're so lucky <laughs> to have been part of that scene. Well, I, mean, you know, I mean, I feel that there must be a scene now. It's a different scene. But when I was in my 20s, we went out and we found fun. Yeah. And we didn't say, I wish I was born in the 40s. I, I really miss Benny Goodman, you know. Uh, and now it's not happening on the Lower East Side like it was in the 70s. Mm. But it is happening in Brooklyn. And anybody who's in their 20s is out in Brooklyn. And they're having fun every night. And there must be scenes going on out there that you won't know about for 20 years until people look back nostalgically and say, oh, I wish I was born in the... 20 teens because that scene in Brooklyn was so cool um, when we went to CBGB's it was a deserted bar with you mm. know that nobody ever heard of it wasn't the coolest place in town it was yeah. the coolest place in town because cool people went there to get away from everybody else mm. um, and it wasn't even cool people I mean Patty Smith talks about it all the time everybody in CBGB's back in the day was uh, the dropouts, the geeks, the nerds, the people who didn't get along in high school, the people who were not on the football team. They were not the homecoming queen. They were the rejects. You That's know? musicians in general, uh, though, isn't it? That's musicians think. in general, exactly. Yeah. So now, uh, somehow, everybody in CBGB's turned into somebody. <laughs> um, I mean, even Legs McNeil. I mean, Legs is a very respected guy nowadays. Uh, ever since he quit drinking, he turned into a respectable person. Yeah. Back then, when he was drinking, he might pass out in the corner of CBGB's and, and they would lock up without even knowing he was there. You know, uh, He was incoherent most nights. Yeah as most of us were. Mm. Um, that's what we did. That's why we went there. <laughs> yeah. Know? Um, you know, it was always kind of funny. As CBGB started to get a reputation in the 80s, you'd see bands from Europe or from Japan who would come to New York and they'd hire a limo to arrive at CBGB. Mm. You'd see these kids getting out of a limo in front of a CBGB's and they'd look at it and go, this is it? <laughs> this little dump of a bar with, the, you know, I mean... For a long time, in the early years, uh, Hilly had these two big dogs that he would lock into the place at mm. night as guard dogs to keep people out. And they would crap all over the place, and he never really cleaned oh it up. So God. the place didn't just stink from sweat and beer. It was from the dogs, and, you know, it was not a nice place. And these kids would come out of the limo going, oh, I'm in CBGB's, and they'd get the shock of their lives when they realized <laughs> what a dump it was. You know, the ceiling was dripping, and you didn't know what was dripping because it was these pipes from the oh, flop right. house upstairs. You know? I'm, I'm, I've seen pictures of the toilets, which always freaks yeah, me out. Yeah, well, we didn't really use the toilets much. I mean, the people who went off, and we'd use the, the alley in the back, was cleaner. <laughs> I mean, you didn't know what was in the toilet, man. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> it was kind of funny that the toilets became famous... Um, in a sense, and when they had a, a retrospective, they had a, a show about the fashions of CBGBs at mm. the Metropolitan Museum of Art, which is quite a uh -huh. fancy place. And in the entrance to, way to the exhibit, they had recreated the CBGB toilet. 
And seeing that, it's like such a distortion of what went on because we didn't go to CBGB's to go to the toilet. Mm -hmm. You know, it wasn't the attraction. It wasn't the reason we were there. Wow. You know, yeah. the music was. The people were. I mean, you, uh, a nice thing about CBGB's was that um, when Hilly ex expanded the place, he moved, uh, there was a kitchen and, and the bathrooms, and he took them out and moved the bathroom downstairs. And the dressing rooms were behind the stage. But the stairs to the bathroom was behind that. So to get to the bathroom, you had to walk past the dressing rooms. Okay. So there was never a backstage pass. You were never excluded. There was never a us and them. There was never a separation uh, from the musicians and the audience. Okay. And so everybody had complete access to everything. Uh, and I think that was one of the things that made it more democratic, that mm -hmm. you know, there was no, you can't come here, you know, because everybody had to be able to get to the bathroom. So there was no... You know, it was like a, the door, the bathrooms, I mean, the dressing rooms didn't even really have a door. They had a curtain. So you could kind of pull the curtain if you wanted some, some privacy, but it wasn't like a separate area that yeah. nobody was allowed in. Well, you know, and I think that made it much more um, neighborhood-like, yeah. you know, much more friendly. But most of the people who were there were musicians anyway. Mm. You know, if Blondie was on stage, the audience was the New York Dolls, Patti Smith, Talking Heads, and all the other bands. Because they when were all friends. The next week when Talking Heads were on stage, Blondie was in the audience, you know. And that kind of made everybody compete a bit, because yeah. we all knew each other. And when you got on stage, you couldn't wear the same outfit you were wearing last night when you were watching <laughs> Patti Smith or something, you know. You had to wear something new and, mm. and look exciting. So it really drove people to impress each other. And uh, you wrote a new song, or you got a new outfit, or you know something like that, just to show your friends something they hadn't seen. You know. I, I love that Debbie Harry picture that you have yeah. of her coming out of the car that's tipped oh, over. Yeah, Wait, yeah. what happened? Did you uh, did you just happen to stumble across that car, or did you place uh, in it? In a sense, yes. Uh, the car had actually been there for several days. Uh, okay. I don't think today it would last that long. But there was a, some horrific accident. And I used to ride around New York on, on a bicycle, so I had seen that car several times. Uh, and I went to visit Blondie um, recording a demo uh, in the studio. It was on top of the RCA building, on top of the Radio City Music Hall. Mm -hmm. Up, upstairs, they had some studios, and they were using that studio. And when we came out, the car was still there upside down on 6th Avenue. And I think Chris said something like, let's take some pictures by the car. And I said, sure, you know, and Chris stuck his guitar in the trunk, so it looked like, you know, it was falling out, so it looked like their accident. And Debbie, being creative, instead of just standing there, she got in, got down on her hands and knees and crawled in and came crawling out as if yeah. it was her accident. Mm. So we kind of made up the whole thing on the spur of the moment, and I've always felt a little bad, because I don't know what happened to the people who were really in the car when it mm. flipped over. Um, but we used the wreck of it, and... Uh, and I sent the picture out to a number of magazines at, at, when we first took it, and uh, most of them went along with the joke. And Cream Magazine made some very funny caption, uh, and some of the people said, well, what's the story behind this? And I said, well, I made up the picture. You make up the story. And a German magazine got very upset because they wanted to know the facts. And I said, there are no facts. We yeah. just made this up. You make up something. And they were like, no, what was the story? And they were very, very German, very German <laughs> about it. They wanted the facts, and I wouldn't yeah. tell them, you know. <laughs> I said, come on, be creative. We were, you know. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, that's how that just came up spur of the moment.
Led Zeppelin, of course. Yeah, you worked for them. Um, you took that picture of them outside the the Starship. The yeah. yeah. Did you that get to go? Did you get to go on? Did you get to go yeah, on the plane? On the plane that day. Um, it's a very nice plane. Uh, it was actually called Starship One uh, Enterprise, I think. Mm -hmm. um, it was, uh, and they didn't own it; they rented it. Yeah. Um, if you rented it for a month, they painted your name on it. Mm -hmm. And I was on that plane with Elton John as well when his name was painted on it. The Rolling Stones had it for a month. Um, Alice Cooper had it for a while. It was a really nice plane, mm -hmm. a 727. It had two bedrooms in the back. Uh, one of the bedrooms had an electric fireplace. It looked like a, it was a fire, which you don't really want don't in a plane. You need on a plane. <laughs> <laughs> you know? uh, but it was uh, two comfortable bedrooms in the back. There was some normal kind of first-class seats, a couple of rows of them in the front, and then a big area in the middle that was like a lounge with a long brass bar that had a piano and an organ, electric piano organ built into it, and uh, like lounge seats and uh, you know around that that part of the plane. Um, and the one time when I went with Led Zeppelin, when we got to the airport, um, I don't remember if it was Robert or Lisa Robinson, said, let's take a picture with the plane. Mm. And they walked over by the wing and we took some pictures. What I like about that picture, actually, is that the plane is so big it doesn't fit in the picture. Mm. And it just looks like this ginormous plane behind yeah. them. I have another picture with Elton John where the plane is more in the distance in the background. You can see the whole plane. It doesn't it's look nearly big. as big. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it just looks like a nice plane <laughs> in the background. But this one, it's like fills the whole picture. Yeah, it does. And they got no shirts on, and they own their own airplane. You know, it's like the excess of the 70s. Yeah. It's all summed up in that one picture. Um, but when I went with Elton John, it was kind of fun because uh, they brought me along because uh, he was doing a show in Boston. And, uh, and when they had a plane, they would base themselves in one place, like in New York, and then fly within an hour or two. Mm. Uh, so after the show, you come back to New York. So you had the same hotel room for a month, and you just went out to Philadelphia and to Atlanta and to Boston and you know places like that and come back the same day. I think with Led Zeppelin, I think we went to Pittsburgh or Cleveland or something like that, Pittsburgh maybe. And uh, But with Elton John, we were going to Boston, and he got on the plane, and they had secretly brought Stevie Wonder on the plane earlier, and they hid him in one of the bedrooms. And uh, Elton John got on, and he was hungover, and he just wanted to relax. He had only a half-hour flight to Boston. He had a show to do. And the publicist started telling him, as soon as the plane took off, that um, said, there's a plane company hired a piano player, and you have to just come back to the middle and see the piano player. And Elton was like, no, I don't. Leave me alone. I have to sleep. And he said, no, no, you have to just come and see this piano player. You know, it's a, the, the company hired him special just for you. And he's like, I don't care. I rented the plane. I don't have to do anything. You know, leave me alone. And he really was annoyed at being bothered, and uh, the publicist would not let up and say, look, I'm not going to leave you alone until you come back and see this piano player, and then you can go to sleep. So he walks back a couple of feet back to the main part of the plane, and Stevie Wonder is playing Crocodile Rock on the built-in <laughs> piano. So his mood changed immediately. <laughs> he got in a much better mood really fast, and I took a picture of them smiling and happy together, and then uh, I was done for the night, and I, I hit the bar. <laughs> Let's finish up the interview with a question that I like to ask everyone, um, being as you're such a music fan. What is the one song that you would like played at your funeral? Oh, I've thought about that. It's, it's uh, again, I can't really make a, a one or even a top ten list. Um, 
I, I, I have like a cassette full, you know. <laughs> I, there's an album. It's going to be the longest funeral in history. It'll be like a whole. It'd be, it should be a gig. But I, I want something fun. You know, at Joe Strummer's funeral, they played the Roger Miller song, uh, You Can't Roll a Skate in a Buffalo Herd. And I always thought that set a really good mood for the day. Yeah. It's a very silly song, but uh, a fun song. So I think I'd like something like that. Like, um, uh, I don't know, off the top of my head, I can't even think. You know, I was once got to write a top 10 list for a magazine, and it went to 25. Because I had one A and one B and one C. <laughs> you You're know? terrible at editing. <laughs> you know? Well, I'm pretty good at editing, but I can't cut things like that down. There's just so many songs, like Miles Davis sketches of Spain, or you know, The Who live at Leeds, or The Clash live at Chase Stadium, or you know, John Yoko Imagine album, mm -hmm. or the Rock and Roll album from John Lennon. Um, I have loads of favorites. <laughs> is is there one song that you listen to on repeat? Have you got a song like that? Or I did in the 70s when I was printing. I used to listen to Larry Coriel's Barefoot Boy on repeat and also the Roy Buchanan albums. I used to put them on, on repeat. Really? Why, and, why those uh, songs? Well, they're very spiritual hmm. and very meditative. Okay. Uh, kind of like uh, sometimes I'd have Miles Davis sketches of Spain on repeat because um, it's just that kind of music that you can just listen to all day and night. Yeah. And, uh, and every time you hear it, it sounds different and it takes your mind to different places. Hmm. So it's basically that reason, because you just, it's always different when you hear it. So what's up? next for you Bob what you what, what what can we expect from you soon well all my life people have been asking me to write a book instead mm. I, I have 15 books of pictures that are out in different formats in different countries uh, but this one's going to be a book of words uh, I will put together a biography of some of the stories of people I've met and places I've been and uh, and what it all means to me and, yeah. and uh, you know what, what I've learned along the way that kind of thing and when can we it's not going to be about f-stops or focal length or lenses. <laughs> it's going to be about life, Good. you know, and uh, and how to experience life and enjoy life. Yeah. And so, um, when can we expect that? Uh, in about a year or two. Mm -hmm. It takes time. Yeah. Uh, I, I've just sent out a proposal. Actually, it took a while to get the proposal done, but I finally finished that, and uh, it's out to a couple of agents, and uh, we'll see who likes it, and see. Hopefully, in the next year, I can write the rest mm -hmm. of the book. And are you going to write it yourself, or are you going to get a journalist to do it, or a uh, writer? Well, I've worked with a number of different journalists, but it's mm. never come out in my words. You yeah. know, it's never it's never had my voice, and people tend to put their fantasy of what they think my life is like, and that's not what my book is going to be. My book is going to be mine. Mm. Uh, uh, even the books I have written, and uh, forwards, and introductions, and things I make, uh, if I do an interview, I tend to do it to get the gist of it but then I rewrite it completely and and, uh, and it ends up being all my words okay so who's the, who's your publisher for the book uh, well that's what we're that's looking what for now that's why it's out at agents uh, trying yeah. to find that but I've just started I mean literally I gave the I sent it to two agents two weeks ago and gave it to another one this morning so we'll see okay. how that works it's, it's the beginning of that project but um, that's my main focus that and the archiving and organizing everything yeah uh, but the main next project is a biography oh I can't wait to read that one it's going to be brilliant level you know yeah. <laughs> brilliant thank you Bob it's been lovely chatting okay. to you my pleasure Thanks.
Now, if you love the show, then make sure you subscribe and tell your mates about it as well. And if you have any suggestions on who you think I should get on next time, then please let me know. I want to hear from you. Get in touch on Twitter and Instagram at Kylie Olsen. Music and Me is produced by the Podcast Works and Some Media. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.